I certainly would trade all this world for Jesus. Thank you for that for that song. I'm going to invite you to turn into your Bibles in Psalm 133. Psalm 133, a passage with three three verses only, a short psalm. I want to use this text as a as a prelude to what I want to share this morning. Before we go to to the scripture, let's go ahead and go back to the to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we want our eyes to be focused on you this morning, Lord, that we put aside put aside what troubles us, what causes us to be anxious. Let's put aside tomorrow's concerns and tomorrow's worries to focus on your word and to focus on the truth you would have us know today, not just to take it in with our minds, but take it in with our hearts, that your spirit would speak through your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Psalm 133 is a beautiful passage I've come to to love this past couple of weeks. I've been studying it and decided to use it as a prelude to the rest of what I really want to share. I want to read it in such a way that we, it leaves its impact. You, know, you can just read through a passage and once you're done reading it, you forget about it. I really want us to read through this. The first verse is very familiar and the second two verses really illustrate the first verse. The first verse, he begins by saying, Behold, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Behold. Behold how good. Behold how pleasant. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. Verse 2 and 3 is going to illustrate that point. He's going to say it is like the precious fragrance or the precious oil poured upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of the garments. In verse 3, he gives a second illustration. He says it's like the dew on Mount Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. And then he, he ends with this exclamation point. He says, For there the Lord commands the blessing. There the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. He begins with this word, behold. Behold is, is, is there, put there to tell us to pause. It's, it's like stop here, pause and pay attention. Look. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're thinking about. Stop what you're doing and look over here and behold this. Lift it up and pay attention. It is used in Scripture when we see... It is used many times in Scripture to gather man's attention. It is used whenever he announces the coming of the Lord. He says, he says, Behold, the virgins will be with child, and they shall give the name Emmanuel. When he came with, at, the, at the baptism, he says, Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that term behold is there for us to say, Stop what you're doing, pay attention, look this way, and be attentive. There is something here to Behold. Behold how good. That which is good is good because God claims it to be good. 
It's good because God wills it to be good. It's good because God declares it to be good. It's good because God, in His infinite sovereignty and wisdom, said, this is what I consider good. It is good. Behold, it is good. And what God calls good should get my attention. When God says this is good, I should stop and say, what? What what does God consider good? Because I want to be in line with what God considers to be good. So he says, behold. Behold how good. Then he goes, behold how pleasant. It brings delight to God. Pay attention because this brings delight to God. It brings delight to those who experience it. It is pleasing to God, and it will be a source of blessing to us as well. There are many things in this world that are good, but are not pleasing. There are many things that are pleasing, but they're not good. This is both good and pleasing. And that alone should behold my attention. For what? He says, well, for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Unity is, the term here, he says, together in unity, really just one word. Together in unity, just one word. Togetherness is unity. Unity is togetherness. But what is challenging in that phrase is not the unity word, it's what? It's the dwelling part that makes it challenging to be in unity. It's certainly easier to be in unity when you're apart. The reason why... We so easily see the weaknesses in our own families, in our own church families, where other congregations live in blissful harmony, is because you don't have to dwell with them. And then he talks about brethren, refers to family, it's a beloved term, the beloved, the brethren. There are few things on earth more precious than seeing a family united in love. I mean to see them in that bond of unity. And there are a few things more painful as well, more heartbreaking. There are a few things more heartbreaking than seeing a family that is divided. Which is why Scripture is going to warn us, on a number of occasions, Scripture is going to warn us to stay away from that which is divisive. Why? Because it is good and pleasant that brethren dwell in unity. So in Romans 16, he says, Note, notice those who cause division. Stay away from those who cause divisions. In Titus 3, he says, Is it unprofitable and useless disputes? Avoid them. Reject the vice of man. In Proverbs chapter 6, the seven things God hates, one of them is a man who sows discord among the brethren. Unity. And brothers dwelling in unity is something that is good and pleasing to the Lord, and it should be to us as well. And so he gives two illustrations of this. As you you just unfold these illustrations are just, just beautiful passages. And if you remember nothing else from this morning, walk away memorizing that first verse. He says in verse 2, It is like the precious... Oil. Some of you have precious fragrance upon the head, running down on the beard to the extremities of the garment. He's describing this overwhelming ointment, this oil that is poured over Aaron's head, Moses' right-hand man. He was the first high priest of God's people. 
You can see in, in Exodus 28 through chapter 30 where he describes this, how this takes place and where it takes place. And this precious oil, strongly perfumed, will give out, will diffuse a beautiful fragrance all around. Sometimes we go and we do the, uh, we follow the James model of, of anointing with oil. We take a, a bottle about this big and we sprinkle with oil. This has nothing to do with that. This is pouring oil. And you can see the priest with, not this little goatee, right? He's got this full beard. The oil just pouring down. It says to be what? On the beard. The beard of Aaron. Running down to the edge of his garments. Can you, can you visualize what that looks like? Can you visualize what that would smell like? That, the strong fragrance that would... Now, remember, he's using this as an illustration of what this brethren dwelling in unity should look like. The oil so plentiful that it ran down his face and the finest of spices were taken. You go to Exodus 30 and 28 through 30 and it will tell you there, there's myrrh, there's cinnamon, there's cane, there's cassia, and all this and olive oil, all this mixture, this abundance of mixture. What a powerful image given here. But beyond that, we're talking about Aaron the high priest. So imagine the picture here. In Exodus 28, he describes what the breastplate he said the breastplate is interwoven and is, is, is designed in such a way that it could not come apart. It stays bound to his clothing. And all this breastplate has what? Twelve stones. Twelve tribes of Israel represented here. So what is he picturing for us here? This overwhelming oral fragrance pouring down, covering this breastplate these 12 separate tribes, these 12 separate stones being what? Being anointed together as one. He says, wow, that is good and that is pleasant. You know, this could not go unnoticed because of the smell, because of the beautiful fragrance. You could not hide it. Everyone in his presence noticed it. And then he gives a second illustration in verse 3. He says, it is like the dew of Hermon who does what? Who, who descends upon the mountains of Zion. In Psalm 133, it talks about the dew. When he talks about the dew of Hermon falls upon the mountains, the mountains of Zion that surround Jerusalem, Mount Hermon is totally north of Israel. It's on the border of Syria and Lebanon. And it's known for its snow caps, its abundant rainfall. It provides the main water for the Jordan River. And it disperses this dew on southern Israel due to the abundance of rain that it has. It disperses the dew in what? In a dry land. Mount Zion is a dry land. It rains, or it doesn't rain, rather six or seven months out of the year. They're not going to have a drop of rain. And they depend on the livelihood of the dew that comes down and covers the fruit and brings fruit to maturity and brings fruitfulness to the plains. The descending dew upon the dry land of Israel producing fruit is described as this blessing of unity that he's trying to explain here in these two illustrations where unity is like the dew that descends and pours his blessing, favor, and fruitfulness. And then he finishes with that one phrase. He says, For there... There, 
in that point of unity, there the Lord, what? Commands. Commands the blessing. Where God's people live in unity, the Lord commands His blessing, His promises. There pours His blessing upon His people. And it's not just a blessing of the one receiving it as the recipient of a blessing. It is also one that becomes a source of blessing as well. And so in a narrow sense, it's the blessing of being anointed with oil and consecrated with oil. But in a broader sense, it's the blessing of a sweet-smelling blessing to others as well. In a narrow sense, it's the place where the blessing of the dew produces life. But in a broader sense, it commands that, that there, there would be life. And Zion would not only be recipient of this life, but it also be the source of blessing as well. Augustine says that such harmony can only be found in convents and monasteries. Mono, one. He says we see that kind of unity and oneness in monasteries. But Jerome responds by saying this. He says this psalm, reference of course 133, he says this psalm is truly the psalm of convents and monasteries. It may even be applied to churches, although, sadly, he says this, because of the great diversity and personal interest on the part of members, there does not in the Christian assembly appear to be the same degree of harmony. He says, though there, there, there should be this great degree of harmony, it is so often lacking in the body. Knowing how God feels about Unity, knowing what God says about how good and how pleasant it is to be for the brothers to dwell in unity, should we not look at this and wonder how can we not only contribute to unity, but also how can we do everything we can to, to strengthen that bond of unity within the God's family? Spurgeon, when he comments on this passage, says this He says, Oh, for more of this rare virtue. Not the love which comes and goes, but that which dwells. Not that spirit which separates and secludes, but that which dwells together. Not that mind which is all for debate and difference, but that which dwells together in unity. So, in the past few weeks, we've been, Pastor Farrell's been talking about the anatomy of the church. Next week, he should be starting a series on Ecclesiastes, and I'm, I'm, I'm the plug that comes in between those two series. And I've wondered, how, how, can I, how can I bridge that gap? You know, you're expected on a Sunday morning to come in here and, and expected to, to take off the plane, right context, right surroundings. I'm supposed to go at 30,000 feet so everyone can see the big picture. I've got to go low enough so one, everyone can see application. I need to land the plane without crashing. And all that with the least turbulence as possible. So that's, that's the flight plan in one sermon. And I was reading last week, we read last week in 1 Corinthians 12, describing the gifts and how the gifts are there for the edifying of the body. Yeah, there's one head of the church. talks about the, the different um, tasks that are there, the different giftings that are there, the teachers, the preachers, proclaimers, all that is presented there in chapter 12. And then he finishes 12 with this, with this one phrase, and I thought, well, surely we can't end right there. It's like you're reading the, the, if you go to 1 Corinthians 12, let's go ahead and turn there. We're going to go to two different passages. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 12, first three verses of chapter 13, and then we're going to conclude 
with the passage that Michael read this morning in Colossians chapter 3 as well. So let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians 12. I want to finish that thought that we read last week. Because he ends chapter 12 with this one phrase. He says, and yet, I'm going to show you a more excellent way, verse 31. So it's like, kind of like you're reading a book. You're reading this great book. At the end of the book, the author says, now let me show you a more excellent way, the end. No, that would be like, okay, <laughs> Wait a minute, what is that most excellent way? Now, we know, of course, what you're referring to because we're, we're quite familiar with the text. But I felt it would be appropriate this morning to, to finish on that statement in light of everything that we've been learning about the anatomy of the church to, exhort, to be exhorted in this truth. So I want to see in 1 Corinthians 12... Why this one ingredient, if it's missing, which is love, of course, if that, if that ingredient is missing, then all his teaching on the spiritual gifts, everything he's been teaching them will be vain and will be lost if that one ingredient is missing. Now, I want to look at that in just a few minutes. And then I'm going to turn to Colossians 3 and the classic passage on putting off and put it on and how do we put on love, that bond, that perfect bond of perfection and unity. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians is our preeminent chapter on love. I mean, if someone would ask, you know, what's, what's Corinthians known for? What's, the chapter on love is going to be 1 Corinthians. You hear it often quoted at weddings, and rightfully so. But it's kind of wedged here in, in a strange place. I Meaning, if you walk through 1 Corinthians, you find, you find this passage kind of wedged at the, at the strange place in a strange time. If you were to walk through 1 Corinthians, what would you see? Well, you would see a church that is ultimately struggling with unity. There are multiple divisions. And a church that struggles with unity is a church that is struggling with knowing how to love each other. Of course, ultimately, it means they're struggling how how to love God. I understand that. But that's that's not what he's addressing here. You can walk through 1 Corinthians and see an entire pattern of division. Chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. Chapter 3, he says, there's jealousy and there's strife among you. Are, you. are you walking as mere men? Are we not fellow workers? In chapter 4, he says that none of you be puffed up one against the other. Chapter 5 is a passage that deals with immorality. The strange part of that passage to me is like, okay, so they, they're not dividing over those things that they should be dividing over. He says, here, here is immorality in your midst, and you're not separating from that. And then in chapter 6, he goes, but you're, t- but you're taking each other to, co- to court. In other words, they, were, they refused to separate themselves from open immorality, but yet they're dividing and taking each other to court for the sake of monetary gain. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians deals with what? Broken marriages, disunity in marriages. Chapter 8 deals with division over who can eat and who should not eat meat offered to idols. Don't be a cause for your brother to stumble. Chapter 9 speaks of forsaking our own rights. He says, I made myself free from all men. He talks about surrendering your rights one towards another. Chapter 10, he says, let no one seek his own, but each the other's well-being. He's, you see this continual pattern he's addressing with the church? That as he's teaching them about their sinful pattern, sinful behavior, and he's addressing it, and he's correcting it, and giving proper teaching, he's reflecting a constant pattern of what disunity 
and division and strife and conflict within the church. Chapter 11. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, my goodness, how can the church come together for the worse? And you're, you're worse by coming together. As they took the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper should be a united moment. You take the Lord's Supper together, united at the cross, united around the cross, around the blood of Christ. He says, you walk away drunk. And then he comes to chapter 12. Chapter 12, he talks about the gifts, how they're designed and they're given for the edification of the body. So you see, you see a constant pattern. And so he's going to take a pause in 1 Corinthians 13 and says, well, listen, I've been addressing all these sin patterns. I've called so much division and strife within the body. And I've corrected it, proper teaching theology. But let me tell you something. If you don't get this right, none of, nothing else I just said is going to matter. All the teaching on church anatomy is not going to matter to much unless we understand this and know how to implement this in our lives. How beautiful. How good. How pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This unity is so devastating to the church. We should be so careful to do everything we can to preserve it, to guard it, to protect it. We should be eager to be part of making it stronger. It devastates the witness of the church. Paul will tell them in his second letter, in 2 Corinthians, in his second letter, he'll remind them. He says now, in verse 14, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, verse 14, says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He says what? And through, he says, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. Where he says, we're supposed to be that fragrance, that beautiful, precious, orally fragrance is what we're called to be. And so there's nothing more pleasing than a church that is united, and there's nothing more unpleasant than a church that is divided. The church at Corinth has many problems, and Paul's going to address those problems. But the heart of the problem is their inability to to love one another. And so here we are in chapter 13, the the, the climax of this letter, the chapter on love. And I'm not going to get into verses 14 through 18. It talks about love is patient, love is blind, love is kind. I I add a few, though. You know, someone, I I noticed an article, I think, a couple weeks ago where Judge Ruth Ginsburg asked, What's the secret of a successful marriage? Probably the only advice I'll take from her, but she said sometimes it's helpful to have a deaf ear. That's probably true. But in the first three verses, you know, he's going to continue. Paul's going to continue chapter 14. He's going to say, pursue love. When he ends in chapter 16, he ends in chapter 16, he's going to tell the brethren, be, be alert, stand firm, let all that you do be done in love. So he's going to continually emphasize the necessity of love but in, in the first three verses, he's going to explain the primacy of love and the necessity of love and explain why it is essential. He'll say three times in these three verses, if you have not love. If you don't have love. I mean, if you have this and this, but if you don't have love, you've missed it. 
First verse, First Corinthians 13, verse 1. He says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The issue, of course, here goes much more beyond the gift of tongues or the gift of languages. I'm not going to speak to that. He speaks in hyperbole here. It's pretty obvious simply because in the next two verses he says, I have all, if I knew all prophecies, all knowledge, all faith, obviously he's saying he doesn't have all. So I would assume in verse 1 he's not referencing the ability to speak the languages of angels because he's speaking in extremes or in a hyperbole to make his case, to make his point. Languages without love are nothing. And it doesn't matter if I have the gift. It doesn't matter if I'm the greatest orator. It doesn't matter if I'm the greatest and most gifted speaker. If my language is void of love, I'm only making noise. This noise is probably referencing the pagan culture where they, they were making their clanging cymbals and parroting their instruments, making all this noise. Basically saying, if I, even if I'm a gifted speaker, no matter what I say, if, this, if I don't have love, I'm just making noise. The thing is, you know, when you're in school, they teach you a lot of things. I took Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, theology, systematic theology, a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Greek. I mean, you take all these things. I mean, you know one class we didn't take? A class on how to love. But we're polished. I know one of my teachers was telling us how to dress. How to dress. He didn't say dress for success, but I guess that's kind of the way he should have put it. How to dress in a pool. And then you film yourself to see, do you have mannerisms, you know? And now that I said that, you can look for my little mannerisms. I get my hand in my back pocket. I do this every time. I'll do you know, you don't want to catch those because you want to be a distraction to the truth. And we, we, we teach all these things, but there's not a class on how do you love people. And then you go to the mission field. You have your sermon ready. You have your theology ready. And you get down in the, in, in the ditches and learn how to love people. I tell you, what he says here is strong. I mean, what, what Paul says in these three verses is, should, should get our attention because he says, no matter if you have all, if you speak, though I speak with, with, with the language of men and language of angels, but if I don't have love, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm just making noise. And the Corinthians, as we saw in chapter 12, had all these spiritual gifts given to them and they didn't understand how it was supposed to be used for the edifying and for the edification of the body. Verse 2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Okay, he's getting a little, a little personal here. I mean, surely having all knowledge counts for something. I mean, I just spent four years in school, three years in seminary, two years, three years to get my doctorate. I mean, surely knowledge amounts for something, not if there's no love. Without love, I've missed the essential. That's why in chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, a little earlier, he tells him what? He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Let me just tell you, it's much harder to learn how to love than it is how to read a book. It's much easier to dig into a book than it is to dig into one's life. 
not less messier. A book doesn't ignore you, talk rudely to you, walk away from you, disregard all the help you've given him. That book is just there and, and it's so easy just to go and dig in a book. But the difficulty and the beauty of love and people. He addresses the question of faith. Do I have all faith? He's not talking about, he's not referencing saving faith here, but living faith. I mean, you might be someone who's got this unwavering faith. You're ready to, to weather the storm, charge the hill. You're quick, you know, whenever there's a quick to bail, you're going to say, no, I'm going to hang on here. And you're that person with a strong faith and you've never doubted. Your faith might be strong, but even there, without love, it says what? I am nothing. Then verse 3. He says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, I mean, you can't give more than that, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Without love, all my sacrifice, I mean, even to the point of ultimate sacrifice, does me no good if there's no love. I tell you, as I read this, my heart, of course, cries guilty. More often than I care to think, my speech was, my speech was nothing more than just making noise. More often than I would like to, to know, the knowledge I have kept me from loving people, did not help me love people. More often than I care to think, I sacrificed I served, but for the wrong reasons. And when I did so, I did not serve to unite the body of Christ. I did not serve to bring me close to my brother. I did not serve to strengthen the bonds of fellowship. Quite the contrary, I served my own interests. I served my own vanity. I served my own pride. And in doing so, I brought disunity, and I did so to my shame. So we get what Paul is saying here. All... All he's been telling them, all the teaching, all the instruction matters little if there is no love. No amount of spiritual gifts, no amount of biblical knowledge, no amount of good intentions can make up for a lack of love. And each one of those areas in these three verses are good things, right? I mean, they're good things, but apart from love, they become useless. They lose their intended purpose. What was designed to equip the body, and that's what was the Corinthians issue there, what was designed to, to strengthen the body, divided the body. And what was designed to equip the body to love each other, and as such grow closer together in this bond of love, instead divides and separates. So it doesn't matter what gifts you have. It doesn't matter how eloquent you are. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how strong of a faith you have or how much you sacrifice. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor, if you're a missionary, if you're an author, if you're a scholar, whatever you are, if you don't have agape love as a driving force in your life, it means nothing. And it's very easy for us to fall in that trap of growing more and more knowledge and less and less in love. Oh, we hide it behind the love of the truth. 
but it's not attached to any life that's being transformed. And if I do it out of guilt, out of obligation, out of legalism, out of pride, out of a guilty conscience, out of tradition, out of recognition, it means nothing. I'm making noise. Without love, I produce nothing. Without love, I am nothing. Without love, I receive nothing. We find our meaning in love as recipients of God's love and as vessels of God's love. George Whitfield said, Nothing is more valuable and nothing is more commendable, and yet not one duty is less practiced than that of charity. So if 1 Corinthians tells me why love is the premacy of love, let us turn to Colossians chapter 3. Again, a familiar passage because it's the take on, uh, take off and take on passage, but I want to, to, to come to that verse in verse 14. We talked about, above all these things, put on love. Colossians chapter 3. He begins by saying, if you were raised with Christ. If you're raised with Christ. True unity can only be found in Christ. Amongst those who have been raised with Christ. Dead in trespasses and sin. Raised to walk in innocence of life. I think a lot of... A lot of churches struggle with unity. You know why? Because there's a lot of people in their midst that are, have not been raised to walk in newness of life. He focuses on the verses 2 through 11. He's going to focus on the putting off. And then in verses 12 through 14, he's going to focus on putting on. You can't put on the new clothes until you've gotten rid of the old ones. He describes it here. Describe what you put on that is consistent with your new life in Christ. And he, he mentions in verse 12 three things that that unite us. Three things that, as we come together in unity, three things here that are listed. One thing he says, what? We come together as the elect. As you just, as you read those three things, those three marks of our identity, that alone should want us, make us to embrace each other in Christ. He says, one, we are the elect. We're the chosen one. We've been chosen, and we've been chosen to be united, dwelling together in Christ. That's what we've been called for. That's what we've been chosen for. Then he says, as the holy ones, separated from the rest of the world, separated unto him. As the body of Christ, we've been, we're holy, we're, we're separated, and together we're, we're this chosen, elect, holy. And then that beautiful word, beloved, we're loved. And so, yes, sometimes we disagree with each other, but we, we love each other. And that should suffice to unite us. So what does this unity look like? I'm just going to walk through these as you, as you read through the passage. You know, they're, they're pretty simple and, and, and um, self-explanatory, if you will. But as you read through them, you get a beautiful picture of what it means to have the bond of love in the body of Christ. First he says, let us be tender. Let us be tender one towards another. Respond with a, with a kind word, soft-spoken. Let us be, be kind. Let us be kind one towards another. No, we used to hear the term, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. Boy, 
That's gone by the wayside. You probably should modernize that, that phrase by saying, if, anything, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't tweet it, don't text it, don't email it, don't post it, don't Instagram it, don't Facebook it. I mean, there, we probably should expand that to be a little more applicable to our modern times, but the reality is, what, what a world of difference if we just abided by that one principle, learn how to be tender and kind one towards another, and then be humble. It's not about me. And that little secret is not about you. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's not worth bringing this unity to the body of Christ. Whatever it is, it's not worth dividing. And I, yes, I understand. There's proper theology and there's defending truth. And the church in Corinth in chapter 5, they should have divided, they should have separated themselves from those brethren who were in open immorality. Absolutely. They should, we should be meek. He says, let us be meek. Gentle. Not harsh. Let us be long-suffering. Long-suffering. Patient. I mean, give people a break. Okay, so they didn't say hello to you. Maybe the first thing on their mind was, I can't wait to get to church to say hello to that person. No, they probably came in. That child messed her diaper right before they got in the car. That child threw up on the way to church. Friday, we're out there at elementary drop-off, just helping the kids get out of the car and just welcoming everybody. And open the cor- door, open the door of a car. Kid, I closed that door pretty quickly. We come here, and we don't give each other a margin of grace. If we missed a Sunday, no one called me. If you weren't feeling that, if you weren't feeling well that day, no one noticed. Man, being long-suffering, you know, giving loving people, and then in here being forgiving. Let us forgive. Move on. Be quick to forgive. Because he comes in almost like the same, almost like the same pattern you see in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. He says what? Now, above all these things, put on love. Now, the difference here, he's not saying these things are worth nothing without love. What he's saying is that this love is what's going to fuel these things. Love, so above all these things, put on love, which is what? The bond of perfection. It's the bond that completes us. Love is the overriding trait that will fuel, that will fuel all of these others. If you have the NASB, it says put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. The ESV says everything binds everything together in perfect harmony. So he's describing here is that the bond of love that, that brings us together, like this built, that holds us together, brings us in perfect harmony, completes us in unity. Love is what brings unity and harmony to a church body. And then he says in verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. He says, and be thankful. And be thankful. If you continue reading there, he talks about thankfulness and gratefulness. How do we cultivate love with our brethren? If you don't cultivate love with your brethren, you're going to fail to know how to be kind and tender and long-suffering and forgiving. Cultivate love. 
by by spending time with your spiritual family. Cultivate love by making them a priority in your life. Cultivate love by, by asking how they're doing. Cultivate love by reaching out to them. Cultivate love by building those bonds and just loving each other in Christ. I would like to conclude with, with these thoughts. I want to come back on the the series on the anatomy of the church. I have I had the blessing of being a part of a couple church plants. The blessing about being a part of a church plant, especially in a in a foreign field where the Christianity is, is minimal, you're dealing with for the most part first generation believers. And these first generation believers, they don't have all the experience to overcome. They don't have all these religious traditions. They don't have all these religious experiences they're trying to avoid. And you sit down with them and you say, what is a church supposed to look like? So how do we structure the church? Well, it's, all I had is this. I couldn't go to history, traditions, experiences. Now, they're not, a, you know, the, I couldn't go to a, an American favorite is sports analogies. And we, we interpret everything through sports, Right? The church has got to be, well, if you're a football fan, well, you've got to have a quarterback. You know, if you're a soccer fan, you've got to have a captain. If you're a basketball fan, we've got to have a point guard. I mean, everything we, we do is interpreted through, through athletics. Well, none of that. You take the word and you sit down and say, what, what should the church look like? How we structure the church matters. And we should attempt to be as true to a biblical model as we possibly can and as we possibly can understand it to be. And I must, in that process, trust the Word to be, and be as true to the Word as I possibly can. Why? Because following a biblical model of church matters if you want to produce the results and the fruit the Lord intended for His church. The blessed fragrance of unity, the, bre- the blessed fruitfulness of the dew united together in love. Individuals are in this constant process of sanctification, are we not? Clay is speaking on that on Sunday evenings. This process of sanctification. We're constantly growing in sanctification. What does that mean? We should be constantly reevaluating our lives, reassessing where we're at, and realigning ourselves with the Word. And man from generation to generation is going to continue to do that because we constantly err left and right and we constantly have to reassess, are we aligned with the truth? Are we aligned with the Word? That's it. As individuals do that, the churches do that as well. The church also grows in sanctification and constantly asking ourselves, are we need, do we need to be realigned with something that's missing in the Word? We should be doing that. The next generation should be doing that. Why do I say that? Because as we go through this process of... of of just talking about the church anatomy, what the church should look like. Having a biblical model matters. I believe that the biblical model for a church involves a plurality of qualified elders that model unity and shepherding. It involves qualified deacons that model unity and service. It involves a committed congregation serving the body in unity and the exercise of the spiritual gifts. 
all in such a way designed to produce the fruit, the unity in the bond of love. As Pastor Stephen comes and prepares to close in a, in a song, I want to turn our attention back to Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. It is like a precious oil upon the head, running on the beard, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down to the edge of the garments. It is like the dew of Mount Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commands His blessing, life evermore.